0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm JC. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And today we're featuring the life of Olive Gibbs, a Labour politician and peace campaigner who was born and bred and had a very intimate connection with Oxford's political history.
1: Today we'll be speaking to Liz Woolley, who's done extensive research into Olive's life. So I'm Liz Woolley and I'm an Oxfordshire local historian.
0: Is what led you to researching Olive's life? What brought you to her in the first place?
1: It wasn't specifically that I decided to research her, actually, but I'm very interested in Oxford's social, political, industrial history in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I just kept on coming across Olive Gibbs in lots and lots of different ways, because she was involved in so many aspects of Oxford's history in the 20th century. And the more I found out about her, the more her story really inspired me. And I just feel that she's such an important part of Oxford's 20th century history, and not one that is particularly well known, certainly to people outside her immediate.
0: So could you tell us briefly about her life, what you felt led her to do the great things that she ended up doing? Mm.
1: So Olive Frances Gibbs was born Olive Cox on the 17th of February 1918 and she was born in a part of Oxford called St Thomas's which was quite a poor working class area just outside the medieval city walls to the west of the city centre. And her childhood home was Christchurch model dwellings which are an interesting set of buildings that were erected by Christchurch the college in the 1860s to house the working classes. Um, she was born there. She had one much older brother called Sid and her parents, Lazarus and Mary Ann, had lived in St Thomas's for a long time. Lazarus's family actually went right back to the 1660s in St Thomas's and Olive was very, very proud of her deep roots in that part of Oxford. So she grew up there. She went to the local school across the road. She won a scholarship to Millham Ford School. That's where St Hilda's College is now. She did well and she then went into librarianship, became a librarian at the Oxford Central Library and through meeting her future husband, Edmund Gibbs, she got interested in politics because he was the son of a a well-known local politician. And it was really from that point onwards that she began to get more and more involved in campaigning, in marching, for example, against the Spanish Civil War or rather against the British government's attitude to it. And this led her into a life of politics and a very long and distinguished career as a local politician and also as a peace campaigner. And she was actually one of the founders of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, as well as having many other interests, both locally and nationally. So could you give us a sense of how her involvement in local politics began? Yeah, I think it really began in the early 1950s when she was asked by two uh, local mothers, actually, who were friends of hers in St Thomas's to help with a campaign to save five nursery schools in Oxford, which were threatened with closure by the then uh, Tory-dominated city council. And one of them was the school that she herself had been to in St Thomas's and which her sons also had attended. And she, despite the fact that she was very, very nervous about getting involved in this campaign, let alone heading it, Uh, She did that and um, she spoke with great fire and with great conviction about why these nursery schools should be saved. There was partial success, I think it was three out of the five were saved from closure including her own and she was really sort of invigorated by the partial success of this campaign. She decided to actually join the Labour Party, she'd been a a Labour sympathiser or supporter for a long time but she joined the Labour Party and was quickly elected as the councillor for the West Ward in Oxford and that was a position that actually she held uh, for 30 years and there were three Three main campaigns I would say that really distinguished her long career in local government and these were successful campaigns and in these she was prepared to work with whatever allies she could find regardless of party line so a few years after she was elected in 1958, uh, she and her husband Edmund, who was also a city councillor, led a revolt of six Labour councillors on the majority Labour group against the proposal to build an inner ring road in Oxford, which actually, believe it or not, would have gone right through Christchurch Meadow. And the interesting thing about this, it was one of the earliest schemes in the country, I mean, to raise this whole question of conservation priorities over motor convenience in urban areas, because of course there was a push in the post-war period. More and more people were owning cars and the car was, king kind of thing. But she believed very strongly that Oxford was under threat and that this inner ring road would be a disaster. Of course, as we know, thankfully, the road road was not built. But because she'd gone against the Labour Party line on this, she was actually temporarily expelled from the Labour group for it. The second campaign that she was instrumental in was the demolition of the infamous Cutterslow Walls, which had been built uh, in 1934 by a developer to separate private residents on his North Oxford housing estate from the adjacent council tenants. And as you can imagine, these walls, they were seven feet high and they had great big rotating iron spikes on the top, very physically aggressive walls. They'd been the great cause of enormous controversy and resentment for years and years. But Olive and, again, with Edmund were instrumental in finally getting them removed in 1959 and it was actually Edmund her husband who climbed up onto a specially erected platform and, and wielded the hammer to break the first brick in the wall that actually when he got up there he missed and almost toppled off the platform I'm sure much to Olive's amusement and then the third successful campaign which she was very well known and respected for was that in the late 1960s Olive successfully prevented most of Jericho to the northwest of Oxford city centre from being demolished for some clearance she'd already witnessed the destruction of her own beloved parish of St Thomas's and its neighbour, St Ebbs, a decade or so earlier. People were were moved out of the area and the whole area pretty much was cleared. And when the council proposed to do the same in Jericho, she decided that she would not allow that to happen and that the very deep-rooted, mainly at that time, working-class community in Jericho would not go through what she and her family and friends had gone through in St Thomas's and St Ebbs. And of course, the irony is now that those workers' cottages and artisans. And houses in Jericho are some of the most desirable in Oxford and fetch accordingly high prices. But if it hadn't been for Olive, they simply would not be there, which is quite a thought how different Oxford would be, let alone how different Jericho would be. She's so strongly rooted in Oxford, even though she had this national presence, she was the chairman of CND for several years, very active and successful chairman of CND. But despite that, her absolute loyalty was to Oxford and particularly to St Thomas's because she's such a a St Thomas's woman, a tomrag. As the St Thomas's um, people were sometimes called, rather disparagingly at first, and then I think with affection. And very, she was very sort of out there. I think that's the thing that I really like about her. But she was very rooted in her home parish, and those are
0: those are qualities that I really admire. Going back to her school days, one of the threads that's very interesting in her life is that she seems to have not always towed the party line, that regardless of how other people felt, she stood for what she believed in, and it seems that did land her into a fair amount of trouble.
1: Yes, that's probably true. I think it's true to say that she didn't really like school. It required her to be more organised than she naturally was, and she was actually sent across the road to the local school, St Thomas's local school, very early, at the age of two and a half, because her parents told the headmistress that she was a nuisance at home and that she needed discipline uh, which gives you some idea and so she went to school very early as I say she didn't particularly enjoy it but she she definitely took part in the kind of very boisterous kind of street life of St Thomas's, which was well known as quite a lively parish, as you might call it. Lots of ongoing battles between the St Thomas's children and their neighbours in St Ebbs, for example. And yes, I think she probably stood out from the beginning, really. And even when she got this scholarship to Millham Ford, she also got a scholarship to the girls' high school, I should say, but her father decided it would be much too ladylike for her, so she went to Millham Ford instead. And um, she did well there. She passed the school certificate in seven subjects, but she also got a record for, I think it was 37 detentions on consecutive weeks which her son told me she was actually very proud of. She lied to her parents and told her parents that school was uh, happening on Saturdays but in fact she was going in for these detentions every week so she managed to get away with it. But yes I think you're right that sort of element of not towing the line, being a little bit of a rebel but also knowing how to play the system was something that distinguished and uh, defined her adult life as well.
0: Going back also to her family life, it seemed that the difficulties she faced actually profoundly affected her. You know, some people carry on the scars for what they faced when they're younger, but it seems she actually wanted to change the world so nobody would have to go through what she went Mm. through. Yes, I'm
1: afraid to say that her father, Lazarus, was was a bully and a violent bully, and he terrorised, I think it's true to say, members of his family, including his wife, Olive's a mother and also Olive herself and her brother to some extent although I think Olive got the worst of it and this was physical and verbal and mental abuse which she wrote about very openly in her autobiography which was published late in her life and she and other members of the family not just the immediate family were terrified of him and she later came to realise she said that he wanted the best for his family and that he was caring in his own way and he was very ambitious for his two children but the way he showed that was very unfortunate to say the least and so yes you're right she carried the scars of this mental and physical abuse that she'd had as a child through her life Um, and it actually resulted in her having a mental breakdown when she was um, in her 30s which she recovered from partly through working politically and also partly through psychiatric treatment but she suffered terrible anxiety throughout her entire life sometimes to the point where she couldn't leave the house Um, and this obviously did hold her back but one of the things that it did was that it made her very very caring towards other people very very anti any form of violence physical, mental, or in speech. And I think it led her to be a peace campaigner, as you say, on the wider um, stage, not just for you know a peaceful household, but for a peaceful world. Um, and she was uh, virulently against not only the holding of nuclear weapons, but the threat to use nuclear weapons, for example. I think her early experiences led to that very strong belief in, in peace for all people, and that nobody should be browbeaten in the way that she and her mother and to some extent her brother had been. So you mentioned her autobiography what sense of her voice do we get from her writing of her character We get a good sense of it it's a, it's a very candid account I would say and a lively account there's lots of wonderful anecdotes in it uh, about her growing up in St Thomas's and also her later life and it's a it's a really good read it's called Our Olive and I would recommend it to anybody and I think one of the things that is interesting about it, it was published in the early 90s and she talks very openly about her mental health problems about this breakdown that she had which was following the birth of her two sons Andrew and Simon not immediately but when they were young and she talks about these terrible anxiety attacks which affected her all her life actually and if you think that you know she put herself forward to have this very public role. Um, She was Lord Mayor of Oxford twice, she was the Sheriff of Oxford, she was um, the Chair of the Oxfordshire County Council, so she had a very public life, and yet she had these terrible anxiety attacks, which she struggled with a lot. But she was very open about that in her book, and I think, if you think, this was at a time even in, you know, the early 90s was still a time when actually public figures did not talk about their mental health problems. We're getting used now to people being able more to come out and talk about mental health problems, people who are in the public eye. But I think, you know, 20, 25 years ago that wasn't true, and I think that's very brave of her to have done that. And actually, several people have said to me how reading her book had really helped them in their own personal struggles with mental health issues, or even just thinking about how other people might be affected by them. So, you know, I think one of her many legacies actually is simply that, not necessarily to do with her political life, but to do with her bravery in discussing openly what Mm -hmm. she
0: herself had been through. I think that's, you know, I think it really it's a, it's amazing that she seems to be very much a woman of our time, with what you say with the mental health um, issues she discussed, and also with the issues of abuse that she discussed, that still women are trying to find a way to talk about today. What other aspects of her legacy, especially in the political life, do you feel that she left behind? Mm.
1: I think when, when she was first elected to the council, she found that her fellow councillors, who were not all men, but predominantly male, were quite frosty, let's say, towards her, and she persisted obviously and she was on the council she held the West Ward as it was then called which included Jericho and and her own parish of St Thomas and St Ebbs. She held that seat for 30 years so she became an absolute institution on the Oxford City Council and indeed the County Council and I think one of the things that that her early experiences as a a young new councillor did was to make her always very welcoming to, to future councillors and obviously as thankfully more women came to be on the council she was particularly careful to welcome them regardless actually. Of politics, so she was a Labour politician, but um, it's easy to find people in Oxford who were not in the Labour Party and who were actively in other parties who would say that she was a friend. And that was because she was really interested in issues and not in party politics particularly, and she was very prepared to go against the party line and she did that several times and was actually expelled from the Labour Group on two occasions because she went against what the Oxford Labour Group wanted to do. So she found allies wherever it was appropriate to do to further the cause that she was interested in and she was also very careful to be uh, friendly and welcoming, particularly to new women, I think, on the council and several councillors who are still in place now who were young councillors when, when Olive was an older one would tell you that that was the case and I've met several people Actually, the current chair of the the Labour group on the Oxfordshire County Council, Liz Brighouse, who was uh, saying recently that Olive was the person who inspired her to be involved in politics and also was very welcoming and almost played a sort of mental role to her when Liz was newly on the council. One of the things that really struck me reading about her was how recent a lot of this history is. I think we tend to think that these things are all in the distant past, but you say in in 1936 she wasn't allowed to become a journalist because she was a woman? That's right. She left school. She went to France, actually, for 18 months uh, and had a very enjoyable time there. And when she returned in 1936, she wanted to become a journalist on the Oxford Mail, but the chief reporter said that that wouldn't be possible because she was a woman. Her, Her brother, Sid, who was 12 years earlier, was already a successful and respected journalist on the Oxford Mail, sports journalist and you would have thought, wouldn't you, that that would have been enough, but no, it wasn't. And that, well, maybe one of the first times when, you know, she came up against institutional sexism. I'm sure she'd experienced it in her home life and in other ways before, but perhaps that was the first time she'd come across institutional sexism. And again, I think that, you know, that must have galvanised her.
0: What I think is fascinating is that even though she has quite a lot of wrestles with institutions, she was always, it seems, very keen to use legal means, as it were, the right routes to her ends. Um, Could you tell us a bit about the way she wasn't for things like direct action in terms of nuclear disarmament, even as she supported the cause?
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, she was very able and willing to to state her case verbally and to spar with people. But she was not a believer in direct action, as you say. And she actually personally scrubbed out CND graffiti, uh, which students had put up on walls in Oxford. She didn't like the idea of desecration of property. um, And that goes through to her campaigns to save Jericho, for example. And she, she felt strongly that words were stronger than deeds in campaigning and that words would get you further and that reasoned, argument uh, was the thing and she chose to make her point and to have her successes by being on the council which is obviously a traditional establishment body but she did her great work from that position rather than trying to oppose it she sometimes opposed it from within but that was her chosen path and a very successful one.
0: With Olive's great commitment to Oxford and also to working class people, but um, having benefited from education herself, could you talk a little bit about her legacy um, with regards to education in Oxford for ordinary people?
1: Olive really believed in educational opportunities for people of all talents and abilities. As you say, she'd been lucky and talented enough to win a scholarship herself to a good school, but she recognised that not everybody had that opportunity. And so in her later life, she really threw herself into developing educational opportunities for ordinary people in Oxford. So she was a very, for example, a very energetic chair of what's now the College of Further Education on Oxpens Road. She was also a governor of Oxford Polytechnic, as it was then now, Oxford Brooks, for a long time. And she actually received the very first honorary degree that was ever awarded by what is now Oxford Brookes which just gives you some sense of her importance to that institution Mm -hmm. and the humanities and social sciences building at Brookes is named after her another great honour and accolade which really demonstrate how important she was to the development of that institution and also of the College of Further Education through whose doors literally tens of thousands of Oxford people have passed. Thank you for listening to Women in Oxford's History. Join us again next month, when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past. You can also visit our website, womenofoxford.org, to read our blog post about Olive.